This show is sponsored by the Bitbox O2 by Shift Crypto. If you're new to Bitcoin, you need to be taking self-custody. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Must be done. Hardware wallets are a great way to do that. And in my opinion, the Bitbox O2 Bitcoin-only edition is a fantastic tool for you to take to help you take self-custody. It makes it very easy to do so. It's easy set to set up, easy to operate, and a great first step. Of course, for the more experienced among you, it's also rich with features uh, that allow you to enhance your setup. So you can use it with different multi-sig uh, arrangements. It's fully open source. There's repro reproducible builds. There's a bug bounty program in place, encrypted USB channel communication, and lots of other features. I highly recommend you visit the website uh, and check them out because they really are pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. So if you want to do that, go to shiftcrypto.ch forward slash rapid fire and you can get yourself 5% off. But before you take custody of your Bitcoin, you obviously have to buy it. And if you're in Canada, I highly recommend bullbitcoin.com, a phenomenal non-custodial exchange, which means they don't custody ever your Bitcoin. You buy them through them. You provide them with a receive address, which goes right to your own self-custody. That's the best way to do it so that you're never leaving coins on exchange. As we often say, not your keys, not your coins. You don't want to be left in the lurch should something happen to the exchange internally, externally, or whatever. And very soon also, they'll be offering self-custody support to international clients, which means no matter where you are, you'll be able to avail of their services to help you get set up properly so that you're buying Bitcoin and custodying it in the best way possible. So look out for that. And finally, the Bitcoin 2022 conference. The 2021 conference was insane. I talk about it all the time on the podcast. I had such an amazing experience. And this year, it's going to be on Miami Beach instead of in Wynwood. 35,000 capacity. I can't even imagine what uh, the organizers have in store. I'm sure there's a bunch of surprises. Uh, but the best part about it all is not so much the speakers or the peripheral events. It's meeting other Bitcoiners. If you haven't been to a Bitcoin conference, you just are going to have to take my word for it. It's incredible. So if you'd like to go, it's from April 6th to the 9th. And if you want 10% off your ticket, use the code RAPIDFIRE at checkout. Let's do it. We're live. Ryan, what's up, man? Hey, good doing? morning. Good. Thanks um, for having me on. Thanks for coming, man. I've been uh, watching your, you know, keeping track of your profile for a little while. And I keep seeing... Images of uh, oil field Bitcoin mining, um, guns, babies, open spaces, nature, farming, meat. And uh, I thought that's probably someone you want to talk to. So I'm looking forward <laughs> yeah, to having bet. a chat today. Yeah, up here um, in Wyoming, it's a, it's a great place to be. Oh, it looks incredible. I'm trying to be an advocate of the state for sure. Yeah. Um, for people that may not be familiar with you, uh, can we get the, the intro and then we'll, we'll get rolling? Yeah, you bet. So I'm uh, one of the co-founders and um, um, chief operating officers of uh, J Energy. We're a, a Bitcoin mining company. Um, primary focus is on natural gas Bitcoin mining, but we're also uh, breaking out into, into some on-grid spaces as well. And, you know, what's the backstory of, of J Energy? How'd you get into that? It's a relatively new industry. <clears throat> yeah, you bet. So um, the real background is I'm, I'm an oil and gas guy by um, trade. Uh, I'm a petroleum engineer. I've been in oil and gas operations my entire career. So drilling completions, production facilities. Um, you know, I've actually 
grew up um, pumping wells. So actually being an operator, you know, running my own well sites, things like that. Um, I grew up in Canada, um, right on the Alberta Saskatchewan border. Uh, I moved to the United States in 2008. So I've been here a while. I'm a permanent resident now. I've got uh, the ability to apply for my citizenship. So um, there's, you know, a little I guess bit you're happy about that in recent, with, with recent events. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I don't want to get too much into the Canadian side of it. All I can say is that, you know, growing up in Canada and even when, you know, my first quite a few years in the United States, I'd consider myself a extremely proud Canadian, wear that, uh, that maple leaf on my sleeve, you know, make sure that everybody knew that I was Canadian. And I think now that after, you know, everything that COVID and the way the oil and gas industry has been treated over the years up there too, it's just, uh, you know, it, it's tough. It's yeah. definitely tough. Yeah. It's, it's crazy how much that country is shooting themselves in the foot right now. I mean, with all this stuff, you could, you could connect the dots way back further than just the last 18 months. Right. But yeah, uh, it's almost stunning that it seems like every move, the current government, but, you know, I, I doubt the other one, if the other ones were in power, it would be that much different. You know, conservatives usually is a little more friendly to oil and gas, but they just uh, seem to be going in the exact opposite direction for a prosperous, you know, healthy society and economy, you know? It's, yeah, it's I mean, cool. they sit on a wealth of natural resources and, you know, that should be completely celebrated and, and pushed. But, uh, you know, really, it's it's almost like it's trying to be, you know, squashed and killed, which is, it's too bad. And I mean, you, you said it right too, where you've got, you know, there have been conservative governments in power very recently, you know, within the last decade. And, you know, there's still no new pipelines that were built to the West Coast, no new pipelines that were built to the East Coast, and no new pipelines that were built down South to send more oil into the United States. So yeah, when you're sitting on a wealth of resources, you can only consume so much yourself. Yeah, but you know, who needs, who needs resources when you have a money printer? You know, yeah, this exactly. is everything. <laughs> um, so well, yeah, so a little bit more background. Then. So, uh, you know, I moved down to the United States in 2008. Um, like I said, worked oil and gas operations my whole career. Uh, I actually, when I first moved to Texas, would have been in 2010. Uh, <clears throat> I moved down to right on the basically the Mexico-Texas border. So I was living in Uvalde, working out of Carrizo Springs, which is uh, you know about 40 miles or so from the border. We were uh, we were drilling Eagleford, you know, exploration wells at the time, which uh, the Eagleford play ended up taking off. And, um, you know, I was running around that country. It was, it was a lot of fun. I was, you know, one of the first, you know, engineers down in that field that worked for Anadarko Petroleum, who I was working for at the time. And I had a, you know, work visa to be down there, but, you know, you, you never crossed into the Mexico side, but it was pretty funny because you're, you're actually going through checkpoints all the time, though, being that close to the border. And, you know, the first question that the border patrol guys ask you is, you know, are you an American citizen? And, no, I'm not, but I also can't speak Spanish. And so you're, you're pulling all your paperwork. You've got to travel with your paperwork. <laughs> and so it was pretty wild down there. I worked, uh, I worked South Texas for quite a while, um, ended up uh, moving into West Texas. So if you know where like Midland Odessa is and you drive, you know, a couple hours west of there, there's the Delaware Basin, which is a, a very prolific play that's uh, booming right now. But uh, we were drilling exploration wolf camp wells at the time. So I got to go be out on some of these very first original wells, um, you know, where there's basically no oil and gas infrastructure in place. And um, now, now out there, it's absolutely wild. But uh, yeah, so I worked all over Texas. I lived in Houston, lived in Austin, um, 
always worked for the most part South Texas or the Midland Basin or you know basically the Permian Basin, which you probably hear the most about, mm. which is in West Texas. Um, what ended up happening was then is that some guys that I worked with at Antarctic Petroleum, um, they had just formed a new company. It was a private equity backed oil and gas company um, with a PE firm out of Houston. And uh, they had leased a, a significant acreage position on the eastern flanks of the Powder River Basin here in Wyoming. And uh, they were looking for an operations guy to, to come in and help. And so, you know, I left Austin in 2019 um, to move up to Wyoming here, uh, became a partner in this oil and gas company. And uh, I was handling the day-to-day -day operations of, of the company. And we, we ended up taking over another, another oil company that was based out of Gillette at the end of 2019. But really the story or the intro into Bitcoin mining, um, which is really what this is about, is that, uh, you know, we had drilled an expiration well at the end of 2018. And like I said, this was on the eastern flanks of the Powder River Basin. Um, it was an, a, you know, pure play exploration well. We were trying to prove that this part of the basin could work for oil and gas operations. So, you know, you the way that exploration kind of works is that it's typically smaller, you know, private companies that are willing to put some risk up to, to try to extend or prove where the basin kind of goes to or the plays go to. And so you're, you're typically trying to get in at lower acreage costs. Um, and then you, you know, put your money up to drill one or two or a few exploration wells and delineate your position and see what you've got, you know, and then the game plan is, can you, can you run it yourself and can you develop that play or at that point then do you have you sparked the interest of some of these major companies to you know flip it over to them and you know kind of go do the business model again as to try to pick up new positions so 18 drilled this well early 2019 we brought it online and uh you know wyoming has a has a regulation or a ruling on how long you're allowed to flare gas for um and so you know it's typically safe you're allowed to flare for 30 days. You can get extensions on that. Um, but you have to have kind of a plan in place as to, you know, once you get to a certain day, you have to be under a certain amount of gas that can be flared, which is 60 MCF, um, or you're going to basically be having your well shut in. And so the problem for us is that we're in a remote area. No other oil and gas operators are really operating around us. So there's no infrastructure in place. We had just drilled this well brought it online and obviously we need the data for the well to be online um, to prove our position. But not only that, that's our revenue stream as well that's coming in. We need to you know, pay off our investment of drilling this well. Um, but the cost to build a pipeline out to these super remote areas when there's no infrastructure, like it's just, it's very hard to justify on, especially on an initial, an initial exploration well. You know, it's just, you know, you need to see this well data first before you put any more capital into it, or it could really, really hamstring your, your organization. And so, you know, we were looking at everything we could do to, to keep our well online. And uh, that was when, in, you know, in early 19, we started talking about, well, you know, there's, there's another group here. He's actually a partner um, in J Energy now, Adam Sarvey. Uh, they had one of the very first Bitcoin mines. Actually, I think it was the very first Bitcoin mine off a natural gas well in Wyoming. And, uh, you know, talking with groups like that as to what they were doing, we said, well, let, let's give this a shot and see, you know, if we can reduce our flare volume, get it under that 60 MCF a day threshold so that we can continue to flare the well. Um, and then we can keep our, our well online. So we did do that. We put a Bitcoin mine on our site in 19. And at the time, you know, I, I really wasn't that concerned or, um, to be honest, really cared that much about 
what was happening on the Bitcoin side, you know, my oil production was flowing and that's all I needed. And so that was our introduction to it. Um, you know, and then J energy, you know, basically we took our learnings from, um, you know, what worked, what didn't, how can we scale? What would prevent us from scaling if we kept this similar business model, you know, built things like this. So, um, and that was really the, the, the start of the company to, to go from there. What usually happens to, so you say, you know, you have like an exploration well, and you've got 30, <clears throat> 60 days to flare, like what else are you going to, how do you manage that in normal circumstances? Yeah, what, what happens? hope to try to get extensions and prove that, look, this is an expiration well, this is going to bring, you know, if, it, if the data is good, you know, we're going to put more investment into this area, which more investment means more oil production, which means more taxes for the state. Um, so you try to make a, a pitch as to why you should get an extension and, you know, long-term, if the data looks good, you'll show them, here's our plan in place. Here's the midstream group we're working with or the pipeline that we will build. You know, that's typically the route that you go down is to say, you know, here is our development plan. Here's what we would do if this works out well, we just need more time. Yeah. And so what, what normally happens with the, the natural gas that would be flared off? How, like in an operating well, what happens to that? Like, yeah, in this scenario. Um, so like, if you are just, if you don't have a pipeline in place, your, your, your option is basically just to flare it. So, so pipeline otherwise, so like a bigger operation, a pipeline takes that natural gas. Is that what yep, you're saying? Exactly. So, I mean, if you go into the heart of any, any oil and gas field or basin, there's going to be pipelines, you know, gathering systems all in place. So typically the way it works is you'd have, you'd have an operator in ENP, you know, like an oil company who they would have a full field gathering system where all of their wells that they drill or own all kind of meet up into one central delivery point for the most part. There's, mm -hmm. you know, you might have multiple delivery points that get into the same system, but you know, you'd have then a sales or a custody transfer spot within your field where, Hey, this is our sales meter. Once gas goes from, you know, this place to this place, it, right. it transferred on to the midstream group that you sell it to, which then from there, they take it to their gas plants, which eventually then gets down to, you know, a power plant or at the end of the day down to your home for heating. Gotcha. And are most, do most jurisdictions have some sort of regulation on flaring like this? Like you have a certain amount of period, uh, time period to prove the resource and then you got to figure something else out? Yeah, every state has, has a certain rule. Um, Wyoming's probably one of the more, you know, they're one of the more regulated ones. Uh, Wyoming's only flaring about 0.2% of their total gas production um, and it's continuing to drop. Uh, Texas and North Dakota historically have been kind of one of the, um, the most lax, um, as far as, as you know, what you're capable or allowed to do and how long you can flare for, um, Texas is getting more stringent as well. Um, you've got some guys in the industry like Scott Sheffield, who's, uh, you know, he's been the CEO or head guy at Pioneer, which is one of the largest oil producing companies, you know, in the United States, um, you know, guys like him are starting to get very vocal about the oil and gas industry within ourselves should regulate flaring. Um, there's no reason that we should be flaring because it only hurts our business when you think about it. Um, one, you're taking a natural resources, a resource and setting it on fire. Like it has value. It, it's ridiculous, right? Mm -hmm. But two, it's ammo for environmental groups and investment groups that, you know, want to have an ESG or environmental you know, story within their portfolio, it, it, 
it basically makes it so that there's a lack of investment in the industry. And you've seen that over the last couple of years that the oil and gas industry has been severely hampered by the amount of investment dollars that have come in the industry. And now with oil prices dropping during COVID, a very small lack or investment coming into the oil and gas industry, that's why you're seeing natural gas and oil prices booming now is because people haven't been drilling wells because there's a lack of funding to do it. And the investment community is basically forcing oil and gas to live within their cash flows now, whereas, you know, previous years, kind of the motto has been oil production kind of at any cost. So people have been, you know, standing up rigs all over their field, drilling these wells, knowing that they don't necessarily have to put the infrastructure in place, especially in, you know, North Dakota or Texas, where their flaring rules are more lax. So you can get oil production online very quickly, not worry about your gas and start getting a, you know, a return on your investment really quickly, but that's, that's changing now. So companies so are being forced. Is it, is it right to us if I'm hearing you correctly? So because of these regulations and this relatively short time period to prove a resource, is that why you see explorers and, and, and people who are putting in these types of wells to try to find resources coalesce around existing resources because the infrastructure is there and the, the risk is less. And if they find something, they plug in right away and they're, they're within the time frame of the regulations. But, but because of that, do you see, I mean, it stands to reason you'd see less exploration in newer resources or further away from the infrastructure. And if, if Bitcoin mining really is a solution where you can not only eliminate that waste, but monetize that waste at source so that you have ostensibly an infinite time period to prove the resource if you have the capital and it's and it's worthwhile to do so then would this not create kind of a, a boom in oil and gas exploration just because it allows you to uh you know adhere or conform to the regulations as they exist today yeah so you know i think i look at it a lot differently than probably anyone else in the Bitcoin mining natural gas space. And when I say I, I mean, we at J Energy, um, our business model is different. We're, we're not targeting flare gas within our company. Um, and so, and, and I can speak to that a little bit, but yeah, I would yeah. say that, that right now in oil and gas, that there's very, very few exploration wells being drilled. Um, and it comes back down to the lack of investment within the industry over the last couple of years is that, uh, people are pretty much only drilling wells right now that have the ability to go to sales right away. Um, they need that absolute return on their investment. Um, they're being forced to live within their cash flows, which a business should be forced to live within your cash flow. Like what's happened over the last 10 years in the shale oil and gas industry, it's just been, you know, it's almost kind of like the same as, you know, the money printing that's been going on over the last couple of years within the government. Like these oil companies have gotten, you know, massive infusions of investments drilling wells that, uh, you know, to get production up at their highest pace that they can, but not necessarily having a long-term strategy or vision as to, you know, necessarily a, a return on their, on their dollars. And so there's a lot of companies that went bankrupt over the last couple of years, you know, oil prices hit negative last April, but they're for a lot of 2020 were, you know, in the $30 range and, you know, many companies went bankrupt and cause they were just over leveraged, but, uh, mm. Yeah, what you're seeing now is, you know, companies, like you said, just they're drilling wells that they can put to sell. We got $5 natural gas. We haven't had had this for years, you know, like nobody's going to be drilling a well that they uh, that they can't put that gas to sales right now. 
Right. But to the point about, you know, the option for Bitcoin mining, you don't think yeah. that's going to enhance like the, the vigor around exploration uh, in the future? No, I don't think so. Um, maybe to an extent or a little bit, but, you know, there's a lot of challenges with, um, with targeting new wells um, for Bitcoin mining. And so, you know, I, my personal opinion is that the Bitcoin mining that takes place in, in the oil and gas space on when people say stranded or flared gas, it is going to be literally on wells that just don't have the ability to get to sales or on um, wells that are, you know, very close to the rules or regulations that allow them to flare. And so, for example, like, you know, in Wyoming, if you can flare up to 60 MCF a day on a well, if you've got a well that only produces 90 MCF a day of gas, well, now build a Bitcoin mine for 30 or 40 MCF and flare the rest of that gas. Um, mm. Bitcoin mining won't solve flaring because in order to ensure that your Bitcoin mine doesn't have stranded capital, which basically means that your generator's fully loaded and all of your ASIC miners that you own are all running, you know, you'll never build a Bitcoin mine for the peak production because that production declines. And so if you're going to be Bitcoin mining off flare gas, you have to build that mine for, you know, a significantly smaller portion of what that well is capable of producing, or you run the risk of having stranded capital yourself. And mm -hmm. so you're always going to have some amount of gas that's going to be flared for the most part, unless you, you know, you want to run that risk. So like, for example, the overwhelming majority of gas that's being flared across the United States is on newly drilled wells, because I don't know if you've ever seen like a, a decline curve on what a, like a well's production looks like over the life of its time. So like right now, you know, probably 90 plus percent of all oil and gas wells being drilled are in, are in tight rock or like shale. And so the, pro, the production profile on these shale wells is, you know, it's a hyperbolic decline. So you've got peak production, you know, in the first 30, 60, 90 days, and that well is going to drop it and it's going to decline off in, you know, 50% in the first 12 months. And then you won't get under a 10% decline for the first five to seven years of the well's life. So you're dropping double digit declines on these wells production for the first, you know, five to eight, five to seven years. Right. Like, so if you try to build a Bitcoin mine for that amount of gas, mm. there, you can't do it for the peak. You right. know what I'm saying? So, so you're saying you, you got to find the sweet spot that is the yep. right place in the curve, which necessitates the fact that you're going to be flaring anyways, right? Because you're, exactly. you're, build, you're building out for a lower capacity. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, it makes total sense. You know, so, and then the other stat to kind of look at is like, you know, um, if you look at the total volume of gas that's being flared, it's a substantial amount, like absolutely massive amount of gas. Um, so like in 2019, you know, I think it was something about uh, close to like 1.5 billion cubic feet a day of gas, which when you convert to the power potential of natural gas, and then you look at, you know, how big of a, uh, how much power basically could you make, you know, it could be like half to three quarters of the entire Bitcoin network worth of power, which then you go, you know, there's an unlimited amount of gas and power here. But then when you break it down to, well, I, I need my Bitcoin mine to be sustainable long-term and to be scalable um, 
where can I park this in one spot where I don't have to continue to move and chase? Um, it gets significantly harder. So like take Wyoming, for example. Um, obviously I live here, so I've dug into it, you know, super in depth and, you know, oil and gas data is public. So you can look into it. There's 40,000 wells in Wyoming. In 2020, the average day we flared, you know, about 12 million cubic feet a day of gas. When you convert that into like the power potential, that's about 50 megawatts of power a day, which when, when you look at like some of the largest public mining companies right now that are out there, you know, 50 megawatts is about what some of them are running at. They're scaling to hundred, scaling to 200, you know, they're, they're getting bigger than that, but 50 megawatts is a substantial size Bitcoin mine. So you go, that's gas. That's just being set on fire. Right. Mm. Well, then you look at, well, what are some of the smallest natural gas Bitcoin mines? And, you know, about 20, 40, 60, 100 kilowatts, like these are, you know, quite small Bitcoin mines. But you look at, say, I want a well that does, you know, 50 MCF, which is a, about 60 kilowatts. So, you know, we were talking 50 megawatts. Now I'm talking 60 kilowatts, right? Like a small engine generator. Um, if I wanted to have a Bitcoin mine that sat in one spot for 365 days of the year, and I wanted it to only be 60 kilowatts of the 50 megawatts that Wyoming is, is flaring, there's 11 wells that I could have done that on. Um, and so you kind of understand where I'm coming with like the, the scalability problem gets really tough. Like, so out of 50 total megawatts, I want to build a Bitcoin mine on natural gas that can run 365 days of the year. There's only 11 wells that I could have put that on. Mm. And the size of it, you know, would have been the equivalent to if I wanted to build out on those 11 wells, 34 petahash, which 34 petahash, you know, is, uh, is about one and a half, let's just call it one and a half megawatts worth of miners. So out of that whole 50 megawatts, there's only one and a half megawatts that I could have mined 365 days of the year. Right. So, you know, that, that was the story of GA Energy is, is really that data. Um, it's not that we don't think that flare gas Bitcoin mining has a place. It absolutely does. It's just that um, we recognize the challenge and the issues with, with chasing single wells for building a Bitcoin mine on and that you know, we want it to be scalable. We want it to be long-term in one position. We wanted the ability to continue to grow. And, you know, we just looked at it as saying, hey, that's, that's just not going to be our business model. Um, there's some people that are doing a great job of it and some people that are successful on it, but uh, it's just not the, not the course that we wanted to, get, to basically utilize, you know? So remi remind me again, what is your business model then? Yeah, so we're, we're finding, you know, full field gathering systems, um, you know, say an operator's full field that they've got all of their gas being tied into. We're finding, you know, tail ends of gas plants, midstream lines where, you know, there's a significant abundance of natural gas and trying to find where there is some of the cheapest gas out there um, that's already clean, processed, abundant, that we can then set our, our site up and utilize the gas to scale up from there. And so are, are you basically buying gas that these producers don't really have a market for or can't get the price you're offering? Like why sell to you versus whatever grid or infrastructure they're already connected to? 
Yeah, and so, you know, like I had already mentioned, so the actual like power potential of natural gas, um, you can create a significant amount of power off of natural gas. So like, you know, some of the largest Bitcoin mining companies in the world, you know, let's say they're at 100 megawatts. Well, what does it take to get to 100 megawatts of natural gas? It's 24 million cubic feet a day. And you can drill one Haynesville well, one Marcellus well, one Utica well, and they'll come on at more than 24 million cubic feet a day. And so, you know, we looked at this as it's not hard to find gas that we can scale up and build on. So, yeah, we, you know, we're trying to find people that you know, have had, you know, bad contracts historically with midstream groups that they're selling to, or, you know, have an abundant amount of gas that they're willing to sell some, you know, it's a minute portion of overall streams that we're utilizing, but it can scale to a massive size Bitcoin mine. Mm. And so, you know, that that's kind of our, our business model is that, you know, locking in deals that we can get, you know, what is an abundant supply of gas for us to build a very large natural gas mine, but not in the overall picture of gas that's being produced. Right, and, and their, <clears throat> their incentive to sell to you versus someone else at a higher price, let's say, is just because of the term and the consistency and all these things that you're, so you're going to them and say, look, we'll have a purchase agreement for, I don't know, five years, 10 years, whatever it might be at, at this rate or at this calculation of the rate. And from their perspective, they're thinking like, well, this is great, we, you know, it's, uh, a foundation or a consistent revenue stream in a mix of in, like uh, shorter terms and less reliable and all this kind of stuff. Is that their thing? Yeah. I mean, you know, basically we act as like a, uh, you know, a, a midstream group, you know, that's, that's really what we are is just, you know, so it depends on when you can lock contracts in, when your contracts were placed, you know, that sort of thing. So you know, luckily we, uh, we started doing this earlier this year, you know, obviously natural gas prices are, you know, they're at, some of the highest levels they've been in, you know, a decade, but, uh, um, still, you know, that's, yeah, exactly. Like kind of, you mentioned it, it's being, uh, you know, approaching them and saying, you know, we're going to treat it like a midstream group. We'll purchase gas. And, you know, this is, this is how the deal can be. But on top of that, so we've got our own mine that we have here in Wyoming, but, uh, you know, we do act as like a service company as well. So, not only are we self-mining, but, uh, you know, we build all of our containers and everything in-house in Casper. And, uh, you know, we are oil and gas guys. Everybody on our team um, is from the oil and gas industry. And, you know, we're just trying to teach producers as well as to say, like, look, when you think Bitcoin mining, you don't need to just think flare gas. Um, mm -hmm. Like, take some small, minute portion of your actual natural gas stream. We can build a Bitcoin mine for you on your site. And you can realize, you know, right now you, you can realize five to 10 X on top of what the natural gas market is if you Bitcoin mine. And so we're saying, you know, divert some portion of your gas stream, we'll build a Bitcoin mine on it. And uh, you can capture that arbitrage value difference right now where, you know, the overwhelming majority is going to go down your sales line. You can fund all of your Bitcoin mine operating expenses with that, you know, plus you're still making money also just sending it down the sales line. And now you can say capture 30 to $35 in MCF Bitcoin mining off that, you know, call it a half a percent, 1% of your gas stream. And if you hold on to that Bitcoin, that Bitcoin that you mined, cause you don't have to sell it. Well, today it's worth 30 to $35 in MCF, but it's like having, you know, an ability to store your natural gas in a cavern. You know, you're, 
you're converting it into digital form. And next year, if Bitcoin doubles, you know, now that that molecule of gas or that MCF unit volume could be worth $70 in MCF and, mm. you know, continue to appreciate in the future. So, you know, that's kind of how we looked at it. We just, it's not a knock on flare gas Bitcoin mining. It's not that it can't be done. We just, we understood a lot of the challenges with it, um, especially with single wells. You know, our well in particular, we had, you know, you know, like what a pump jack is or a pumping unit, like it mm -hmm. looks like a horse, you know, strokes up and down. Um, you know, you've got a lot of issues that can go wrong on these wells. You can break rods on it and downhole pump issues, hole in your tubing. So you've got to get rigs out to, to fix your well. And if your well's down, your Bitcoin mine's down. So now you've got two pieces of stranded capital. And uh, if you're not the, the owner of the well, and you're just putting your Bitcoin mine on some producer's well, well, you're beholden to them getting their production back online. So if they say, yeah, you know, we're busy, we're not getting to it, or, you know, it's going to cost too much to get this well online, you're looking for the next spot to go. Right. So, you know, we ran into a lot of those kind of issues where it's just, look, we had broken rods, we got to get a, a rig out on our well to fix it. In the meantime, our Bitcoin mine's down. Um, and if you're chasing flare gas, we talked about the, you know, hyperbolic declines on these wells is that how do you build that size? And, you know, almost every well's drilled with the intentions to put it to sales. And so, you know, the average well flares, you know, 14, 25, 30, 60 days of the year. And then it's put to sales because these guys are drilling wells, bringing them online right away to see what the potential of the well is to make sure that their facilities are built for that well's production. You know, so you're, you're making sure that, uh, you can get your production on, get some data points, you're building out the facilities and the infrastructure, and then that well goes to sales. So you're either having to find a completely stranded well that has downstream issues that you have no ability to ever put it to sales and mine Bitcoin off that, or you're chasing new wells and constantly moving that Bitcoin mine to the next well, to the next well, to the next well, mm -hmm. which, you know, that's a lot of people's business models and, you know, that's, that's fine. It's just, you know, we looked at it as Jay is just, we want to reduce our risks and, and our downtime. So, you know, when you, you look at, you know, Wyoming in particular, like I, I was going on with some of those stats, you know, there's 2,200 wells in Wyoming that had some amount of gas that was being flared. And that amount of gas total there was average, you know, 50 million cubic feet a day, which is a significant amount of gas, you know, 200 megawatts worth of gas. But uh, when you, you, or sorry, 12 million cubic feet a day, which is um, 50 megawatts worth of gas. But when you actually try to find wells to do it on, it just gets, you know, slim pickings for wells that were actually online. Like I said, there's 11 wells that were on for 365 days of the year. And then I say, well, mm -hmm. I want 90% runtime. <clears throat> and then that goes to about 30 wells. Right. So it's just, it gets really tough. So it's just more reliable and your business model is just going to producers and saying, hey, how about diversifying your customer base effectively and we'll buy this much gas at this rate for this long. How about it? Is that basically it? Yeah, pretty much. You know, we've got our own site um, that we've built that we pull gas off of a, of a midstream line, basically. But yeah, then we're also helping producers and midstream groups say, hey, look, look, why would you not diversify your portfolio and have some exposure into Bitcoin? And how do those conversations go, right? Because, 
you know, Bitcoin's 12, 13 years old. It's new to a lot of people, particularly in probably this industry. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if you're on the sales side of things, but what, what, what's generally the, yeah. what are those boardroom conversations or telephone conversations like? You know, I think obviously us being oil and gas guys and, you know, our whole career has been, you know, my background, like I said, is oil and gas operations. Like I've been on site my whole career for the most part, or, or working as an engineer in the office, um, but in operations roles. And so, you know, my other partner, you know, he's a, he's a landman, but slash lawyer. So he's been a, an oil and gas attorney his whole career. And uh, our other partner is, has been a landman as well. And so, you know, we just look at it as, you know, we know what oil and gas companies want. We know what their risk appetite is. We know what the things are that concern them, what, what the things are that they kind of want to hear. And so I think that we can do a really good job of explaining to them as to, you know, here's how you can make this fit and work in your business model. Um, the volatility of Bitcoin is by far the, the biggest hamper into it. You know, um, when you're not just necessarily dealing with flare gas and, you know, the majority of companies that do mine off flare gas, will, you know, use older ASIC miners. So, you know, S9s are definitely more popular than trying to put, you know, say S19s out on a site that has the chance of going down or offline or, you know what I mean? Some of the, the issues that we potentially talked about. And so when you're trying to talk to them about, you know, taking their full field gathering system or a midstream line or a gas plant or things like that and di diverting some portion, you know, you're pitching to them to say like, you should be putting, you know, some of the newer gen miners out here. Well, the, the investment gets pretty high. And then you look at the volatility of, you know, what Bitcoin's done or what the, you know, profitability. So basically your, your dollars per terahash um, profitability is over time. It, uh, it can be a little bit tougher of a sell there. Like we're already in a, in a volatile industry. Look at what oil and gas has done in the last two years. It's went from negative oil price to, you know, pushing 80 right now. Mm -hmm. And so they, they understand the volatility and the risk, but uh, I think the biggest thing is just the, you know, the investment to get into Bitcoin mining at some amount of scale and then trying to understand, like, is that something that we want to be a part of? But um, over the last year, the conversations have definitely changed. Um, More I think that there's, yeah, there's just such a, a significant arbitrage difference between, you know, what you can traditionally sell your gas for, even though gas prices are at, you know, some of the highest levels they've been in the last decade, the, the amount that you can make off, off of Bitcoin mining is still substantial compared to that. You know, we're talking multiples different, um, you know, and you hope that, that that holds up and stays, but to say that it absolutely will, you know, I think that that's not necessarily a good business model either. So but, just to uh, clarify, yeah, you, are, are, you, are you selling them the containers, you know, with the ASICs and then they, they mine on their own and they take the profits or are you negotiating agreement where you put the container on site and you, you purchase the power or is it both? Yeah. So first and foremost, you know, our 95% of our business model is we're self miners. So we source gas ourselves, build our own site. It's our investment to build our containers out. We're buying our miners. We're mining ourselves, mm -hmm. but yeah, we do have the ability to, um, build containers, source miners and everything for producers as well. And so, yeah, there, there's multiple different ways that we can structure those deals. And one being some producers say, look, I just want containers, help me source the miners. We'll figure it out. 
And you've got some guys that are like, we don't want to understand how this works at all. And we'll work out some kind of a management fee or structure for you guys to, you know, do everything from building, getting it up and running, handling custody, all of that sort of thing, making sure any, uh, any cash outs or payments or anything that we want to do on it, you know, just handle the whole thing for us. So yeah, um, when something goes wrong, you send your techs out and fix it. You know, it, there's multiple different ways that we can structure those kind of deals. But like I said, first and foremost, we're, we're mining ourselves and that's, that's by far our biggest uh, focus. Sure. You got to think that the, you know, the more mainstream Bitcoin becomes, the more people are going to want to hold on to that corn, right? Like, sure. Yeah. You know, it's just a, a guaranteed purchase agreement for power is great. But when people start to realize the value of Bitcoin, they're going to be like, hold on a sec. Maybe we should have this on our balance sheet. Maybe we should be accumulating this. Yeah, you exactly. Know? Yeah. And that's one of the things we looked at too, is to, you know, how did we want to build this model out? And, I kind of looked at it in my, you know, in my career, you know, it was, uh, it was very tough pill to swallow if you knew you're selling your gas to someone that was making more off of it than you were. Mm. Um, if, if you found that out with a midstream contract, you, you wouldn't enter that contract again. And so there definitely needs to be some kind of a balance that everybody's being fairly compensated for what they're bringing to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like you said, there's definitely going to, I think, you know, long-term you're going to see, or in the future, significantly more and more companies devoting, you know, resources themselves to Bitcoin mining when they see that there's groups that have the ability to, to monetize off of their product more than they are. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it uh, just, it makes sense. Right. Yeah, totally. What do you make of, uh, you know, we, we discussed kind of the price, the volatility and the price of oil and gas and, you know, uh, power and energy shortages all around the world, uh, the imposition of ideologies from our, you know, centralized overlords uh, all over the world, pretty much on what energy is, is moral and good and what energy is not. You know, what is your perspective on you know, not only that whole thing, but how it impacts your business specifically. Like, do you, do you guys get any negative, uh, have any negative consequences as a result of, you know, these policies that are affecting oil and gas producers? Yeah. I mean, I think we're definitely, it was part of our business plan and model to be based out of Wyoming. And that's for a reason. Um, you know, Wyoming's definitely one of the most energy friendly states um, in terms of oil and gas and, you know, natural resource development, there's a significant amount of coal mining here. Um, so there's definitely some advantages of being in a state that's pro energy, um, which Wyoming is probably one of, if not the most pro energy state here. But on top of that, Wyoming has a lot of, uh, you know, obviously pro Bitcoin stance here. You've got Senator Lummis here. Um, the university of Wyoming is really, you know, pushing initiatives as well. Um, you know, and we're, it was one of the first states to really start doing some Bitcoin mining off flare gas. And I think the WGCC, which is the Wyoming Oil and Gas Commission, you know, they recognize it as well. So you've got, you know, entire regulatory bodies, politicians, you know, the Wyoming, you know, business authority, like everybody recognizes what Bitcoin mining can bring to the table. And I think Wyoming understands that, you know, as more and more policies get driven to try to basically hamper fossil fuel development that it makes sense for them to try to be at the forefront of, of Bitcoin as well. 
Mm. And so I think you're seeing them do that. So, you know, it wasn't a fluke that we're based out of Wyoming at all, or that this is where we wanted to be or where we were going to put our first mine. Um, you know, it was 100% based on, on basically risk mitigation for ourselves. Yeah. What? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of talk about Wyoming these days and, you know, I love the videos of Lummis in in, uh, you know, raid, uh, railing on, you know, central banking or money printing and that kind of stuff. It's amazing. Um, what's it like there? How, how's life been like? I mean, I, like I said at the beginning, I see photos of you living your best life, you know, out in the wilderness and doing all sorts of great, you know, family activities. But, you know, how, how are you feeling about it? Every, you know, everything there? Yeah, I mean, I love it here. I think, uh, you know, I've said it numerous times to people and it's, it's not a ploy or a tactic. Like it's true is that if all things went to hell, I'd find anything I could do to stay in Wyoming. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want to leave here. Um, so I grew up right on the Alberta Saskatchewan border. Like I mentioned, it's a small town of about 2000 people. And, um, you know, actually that's where both of us are from. And so, you know, my kid was born in, in Calgary, but, um, you know, she just turned one, but, uh, you know, so we're, we're both from small towns and, uh, you know, small farming families, oil and gas families. Um, you know, I think we recognize, you know, the advantages to to raising your family in a small town and small communities with and when i say like-minded people i don't want to be put into echo chambers for sure you know diversity of opinion and a thought is very important to me to make sure that uh, you know you're not going down a path that you're being led down only because you're around people that think the same way as you you know i want to mm. be i consider myself to be a pretty challenging person ideology like ideological wise like i, I want to challenge any thought or opinion and I, I i you know love that people will do it with me as well but uh you know there's something to be said for the people of wyoming and you know how proud they are to be here i, I like to say that the people that are here in wyoming are by here by choice you know not everybody can cut it in this state um you've got some harsh winters you've got a lot of blue collar work you've got a lot of tough work when it comes to you know coal mining oil and gas industry you know, it's people that have kind of chosen to be here. And so it's good to be a good to be in a place that people are proud to be where they're from or where they're living. And with that being said, you know, I'd say Wyoming probably rivals any other state on, you know, live your life the way you want to live it. And we're going to infringe as least as possible as we can on your, you know, your life, liberty and property. And I think that, uh, you know, there's something to be said for living in a place like that. But then add on to it, you know, we're, we're both major outdoors people, you know, um, I think what most people outside of the oil and gas industry don't hear from the oil and gas industry the most is that most oil and gas guys absolutely love the environment. You know, they're, they're typically very outdoors people. people. Yeah. They hunt, they fish, they understand conservation. They, you know, they would never want to do something that that pollutes their water stream because they pull from it and drink from it. You know what I mean? Like, so, you know, that's, that's kind of the life that we live. We, you know, we, we want to be out hunting, you know, in the winter, I'm, I'm going out hunting later this afternoon. You know, we want to grow our, you know, we've got a garden here. We've got chickens running around the property, you know, in the weekends, we want to take our camper up into the mountains where we live right in the base of the big horn. So we're, you know, 10, 15 minutes from being in the mountains here. So we, we go camping all the time. And so, you know, I've lived in the big cities. I lived in Houston for a while. I lived in Austin for a while and, and it's great. But to be honest, I was back in Houston this past week. I was in Houston and Dallas for some meetings this week. And, 
man, I couldn't get out fast. Fuck this shit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Well, man, you you certainly seem to be living like the type of life that a lot of Bitcoiners these days seem to be aspiring to, you know, they want to be in in big open spaces that are, you know, pristine nature where they can do many of the the activities that you just referenced, where there's enough space where people leave them alone, where there's, you know, strong communities and that kind of thing, you know, it's, and why would you not want that? I mean, I think it's been yeah, exactly. a, a perversion of, of, you know, not just the fiat system, but, you know, the every time you push towards, I guess, as we move into a more modern life, like things maybe get overstepped, right? And you, you could say the industrial revolution and the industrialization of economies led to these really dense cities where everyone was piled into the same place. And we may now be seeing a reversion to you know, back to something as a result of the decentralization of work and the, you know, less necessity to be in the same place physically and all that kind of stuff. And it's, I mean, it seems, again, it seems like a no brainer, right? Like, why wouldn't you want to live by like a clean stream and fresh air and lots of nature and animals? And, and why would you not want to be both, you know, kind of live off of, of your land or the land nearby and therefore be a better steward of it? You know, these ideas are so, lacking in in most people's minds today like all you see is people on social media or in the street protesting you know climate change or this and that and they have no real connection to the environment that they're living in you know they're doing all that from a starbucks or something yeah and you know i took i took where i grew up and was raised for granted for sure you know i you know rode my bike out in the country or you know eventually grew up and get you know whether it's dirt bikes or whether it's quads or you know snowmobiles in the winter or whatever and you've got the ability to just kind of be free and do what you want and then you know the mindset when you grew up in a small town is kind of like you know went to college and moved to the city and you know I lived Uh, in some smaller towns obviously as well but it was just kind of like that seemed like the natural progression of what you do but yeah, once I got to Wyoming to look after, you know, our operations for this oil company up here, it was just, man, you can't make me move out of here because, you know, <laughs> we talk about it all the time. We're like, you know, we're coming off the mountain or we're, you know, leave where our house is and there's a there's a pond not too far from here. And you, you know, the neighbor kids are riding their bikes with their fishing poles and, you know, they're all meeting up from their, you know, the nearest houses and congregating and going fishing and stuff. And you're like, this is like so bad. Yeah. yeah. It's just <laughs> things slow down a little bit. And I think you start to uh, have an appreciation for, you know, not the hustle and bustle of life, but more so just the, the little things where you can sit out on the deck and see the stars at night or, you know, things like that. It's, it sounds kind of wishy-washy or, or whatever, but I'll be not at all, man. It sounds fucking rational as shit. You know, yeah. <laughs> I think it does just, to a lot of people listening too. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it can ground you for sure. I think you hear people talk about, uh, you know, what um, psychedelics or something like that might do for people. And I think uh, the way you hear people talk about that, I think you could probably argue moving to out in the country can kind of ground you that same way. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, there's also something to be said for the, the overlap between those two things where it just kind of, it brings you back to an encounter with what is real, what is truthful, what is naturally awe-inspiring and and beautiful, which is nature and the stars and areas of your unconscious or, you know, consciousness in the case of psychedelics. But no, I I, I couldn't agree more. But I don't, like, there's only 500,000 people or something in Wyoming, right? The whole state. Why why are there so few people there? You know, I I don't know. I mean, 
I think that that would be, you know, more of a policy director's opinion on that. But at least from, you know, my take on it would be, you've got Colorado just to the south, you know, Denver there that, you know, people want to live in cities, I think people want to have, you know, the things that cities have to offer. And, you know, I think uh, if you look at like wind maps or things like that of the state of Wyoming, you know, it's a, it can get pretty, pretty tough in the winter, especially, you know, the, the wind can blow in a lot of places. Um, and then also, like we were talking about, you know, the, the main driver of the economy, you know, it's not like it's a, a big financial hub or center that, you know, you've got all these big banks or something like that, that have, you know, huge, massive corporate head offices here. It's like, this is where the work gets done. Right. Um, you know, other states and other places are based on, you know, people don't want to work really these days. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're right, taking the money from, yeah, you know, they're taking the money or the, the accounting or whatever of where the work gets done and, and basing it out of a hub where, you know, it may be more attractive potentially to live for, for the larger population. But, uh, right. you know, Wyoming's where, where the real actual boots are on the ground and, you know, coal's being mined, oil wells are being drilled. Like, yeah. And so I, I think that's probably the majority of it. Do you have any feelings or fear that, you know, federally things may be imposed on states as a result of, you know, the whole mess of things that are happening these days. Like, you know, we talk about as this sovereign individual thesis plays out and there may be a balkanization where, you know, more freedom minded people (laughs) go to these places that preserve or revere those same principles. And then people who don't will stay behind or go to the other places. Uh, You know, is there any concern or I, I guess sense on the ground that like, it's susceptible to being changed from the outside? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely a concern. And I think that COVID has probably showed that there's an appetite amongst some groups to take as much control or power over as big of land swaths or constituents as possible. Um, So I think it's definitely a risk for certain places or, you know, in the future. I just think being in a place like Wyoming or, you know, South Dakota, some of these states, if there's going to be a last place that resists it the most or that, you know, it doesn't happen to, I think that these are probably your best shots or best bets at it. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. I mean, I think, uh, you know, what we've seen over the last 18 or 20 months is probably to say that there's going to be more and more power you know, federally try to be mandated over the states. I think if you said, no, I don't see that coming. I think you're, (laughs) you're probably a little bit out of your mind. Yeah, I agree. Um, What was your, we didn't really touch on it yet, but what was your Bitcoin rabbit hole story? You know, because it sounds like it kind of kicked off you in 18, 19, when you started looking at just through the lens of energy needs and the flaring stuff. But, you know, tell me a bit about your exposure and how you're thinking on things have changed as a result of following down the rat falling down the rabbit hole yeah i mean i kick myself that i didn't uh <laughs> didn't read up on it obviously more and study more on it because it was once in my opinion is that people need to self-educate them or self-educate or have the ability to want to listen to somebody talk about it and really understand it before you you can really go in on it but if you can take the time to actually be educated on it and take the time to understand what people are trying to say about it, I think that it's impossible to deny, you know, the positive benefits of Bitcoin and, and how it works. Um, I think that most people are just the same way that I was at the time. It was just like, 
you just had preconceived notions and you're busy with whatever else you've got going on in life. And, you know, I just don't want to learn about that right now. I've got other right. stuff going on that I care about. So yeah, for me, it was, you know, we put it on our site in 19. And like I said, I didn't really care about it. It was my oil production was online and that was my goal. You know, that was what I needed was that, you know, our investment was in this well. And in order to, you know, get a return on my investment and to, you know, potentially drill more of these wells, I need my oil flowing. And Bitcoin just happened to be, you know, something that helped me do that, like any other piece in the process of, of getting an oil and gas well online. And so for me, it was uh, the big like moment. Um, you know, it wasn't that I didn't have an account that I may have, you know, started buying some Bitcoin on and trying to trade it, you know, looking at it that way. But the, for me, the big aha moment was when COVID hit um, and seeing the government's reaction and the, you know, the insane stimulus bills. And that's mm -hmm. when it was just, you know, reading what was happening and trying to understand, like, what is going on and what is like the future impact on on our economy based on this? Because, you know, if you understand any type of monetary policy, like what was happening there, all it takes is for you to be introduced to Bitcoin at that point in time to realize that this fixes that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was definitely, you know, COVID hit stimulus packages and me trying to find a way to protect myself, knowing that I feel like this isn't going to end well. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't have, it's, you know, I've stayed off social media for as much as I could for the last few years. I didn't have a Twitter account. I don't have Instagram, Facebook, anything like that. So it wasn't until early this year that I actually, um, um, Even downloaded, Twitter. <laughs> yeah, downloaded Twitter. I didn't have a Twitter prior to that. So um, for me, though, it was really just, yeah, trying to read more about, you know, what can I do to protect myself? And, you know, obviously my, my business partner, Justin Ballard, he's, uh, he was at me with, with me at our oil company. And, you know, he was already talking this route as well, kind of at the same time. And that's where it just started consuming as many uh, podcasts and and articles and everything that I could. And that's where it was just no turning back after that. Yeah. Do you know, the, the people you speak to in the industry, just as part of your normal, you know, operations of the business that you're building, how do they feel about the level of government intervention, especially since COVID, right? All this money printing and how destabilizing and destabilizing it might be to energy prices, economy in general, like are, are these conversations happening in that domain as well? Because obviously Bitcoin is its own echo chamber. And as, as much as I yeah. think we all try to be objective and challenge our assumptions and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's very much a, a part of the ethos of the space. Something seems so obvious to us that we just kind of, they don't get challenged. And I, I think largely we're, we're correct in that, in those assumptions, but I'm just wondering how much they're, they're permeating the, the ex Bitcoin sort of world, these concerns about intervention, money printing, all that stuff. Yeah, I think, you know, the oil and gas industry has faced a lot of, uh, a lot of pressure for quite a while. So, you know, I would say, you know, the Bitcoin industry, the majority of people in it first heard ESG probably earlier this year, I would say it was kind of around, you know, the whole Elon, right. you know, thing and people were going, well, what's an ESG, you know, whereas the oil and gas industry has been facing um, you know, environmental pushback forever. And it's yeah. gotten significantly stronger over the years where, 
you know, over the last few years, you're seeing, you know, a severe lack of investment in the space, you know, the demonization of the fossil fuel industry. And I think that, you know, the way the industry has tried to do is that, yeah, we'll do our best. To, when I say the industry, I say oil and gas is that, you know, we'll do our best to educate people as much as we can and advocate for our industry and, you know, how it actually does bring human flourishing and, you know, I think it helps that you get guys like Alex Epstein that aren't oil and gas industry people, you know, trying to educate people on it as well. But to be honest, I think oil and gas's reputation over, you know, the last hundred years has, has, you know, big oil, you know, it, people tend to just say ah, that they have their best interests in mind, you know, of course they'd be advocating for their own industry. Yeah. But I think when you've seen, you know, a, a severe lack of investment in the industry, you know, COVID hit and, you know, oil prices really dropped. You've got, like I mentioned, we talked about in Canada, no new pipelines being built for years. Um, but then the population and the human consumption and demand for, for, you know, en energy goes up. And then you've got the build out of unreliable grid infrastructure, the shutdown of nuclear or natural gas or coal power plants. Um, I think the oil and gas industry for years has been saying, we're just waiting for our, we told you so moment. Mm. And I think that they've hoped that that wouldn't be the case. And they don't want to be the guy saying, Hey, we, we told you this was going to happen, but I think you're starting to see it play out right now. Like look at the power prices in Europe, look at the price of natural gas in Europe right now, you know, look at what happens in California every summer. Look at what happened in Texas in February. You know, you've got significant, you know, unreliable or renew renewable grid infrastructure going up and they're trying to treat it like a baseload when it should only be in addition to the baseload that we already have. And, uh, you know, I, you've got oil at pushing $80 a barrel and you've got natural gas pushing five, $6 in MCF. I think that, you know, we have a bad winter this year across the United States. I think it could be hell for a lot of people. And I think you're going to see people that are going to be like, are we going to be choosing to buy natural gas for our home for heat, you know, or should we be choosing to buy electricity for our house, which, which mm -hmm. one could, should we, or could we be choosing because we can't afford both, which yeah. I think there's a realistic situation that there's going to be some people or significantly more people in that position due to the lack of investment in traditional fossil fuel industries and the, you know, massive investment in, you know, renewable or unreliables. Yeah. I mean, it's such a perfect example of how ideology blinds you, right? Because right. To, to, to the point that Alex Epstein makes, it's like with all this climate hysteria, well, show me the proof that energy mastery doesn't result in human, more human flourishing and less climate related deaths of human beings, right? Yep. And the data would seem to suggest that uh, climate related deaths has been plummeting as we've, you know, basically adopted oil and gas and, and developed a mastery over uh, energy or continue to improve our ability to harness and, and convert and transfer energy. And somehow, and, and, and that doesn't penetrate the ideological arguments against certain forms of energy, right? Whereas what you just said, and I think this is borne out in many places where people don't have either any cheap, reliable energy, or it's becoming more and more precarious that 
that very real negative impact on human beings, right? Not being able to pay for heat and light, not being able to cook food, burning other sources of, uh, of fuel that are content, you know, uh, health contaminants, let's say, or damaging to health and that kind of stuff is just completely swept under the rug. Like there's no recognition that that is a very real and immediate, not something off in the future impact on human life and health. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, it, and the people that are pushing those, you know, agendas are the ones that are running under the guise or the, you know, the idea that they're there to help, you know, lower class or lower income right, families, right. you know what I mean? And so it just, it doesn't add up. It's a, you know, it's it, just it's another one of those crazy fiat perversions, you know? Yeah. And, and another one, as you were saying, like how big oil has gotten a bad rap. The, the problem is, is like, on the one hand you have, okay, the confluence of, of technology and market incentives, looking for the best forms of energy to deliver them to the end consumer, the most cheaply and the most reliable. That's great. And for a period of time, and seems like still is, that's oil and gas. No problems there whatsoever. But when you have the monolithic government that is fed by the fiat monetary spigot, well, the name of the game for any business or industry that gets to a certain size is to cozy up to it. Because that's how you de derive supra market benefits. And any industry of any, any significant size is going to try to do that because it's almost like they have to, to continue to compete. Like if your competitor is going to, is going to do the cozying up, well, you got to cozy up. And then what you get is like all the biggest businesses, whereas maybe they would have had dominant market position, but would have been subject to market dynamics and churn at the top and normal change in monopolistic you know, dynamics, let's say, the cozying up really secures their space. And that's when you get, it's, I mean, because it's easy to paint big oil badly. If you look at, you know, the last 50 years, or let's just look at the Gulf War episodes throughout the last 30 years and say, well, how much of that, you know, sure, there's geopolitical reasons and other, but how much of that was nudged by big oil? Probably not 0% of it. There was probably right. some involvement, right? And so that's easy to give it a bad rap. Hey, you're, you're incentivizing war around the world and you're killing people and all that kind of stuff. But if the, the, if the fiat monetary spigot wasn't there, if the governments weren't able to become this force that everyone had to cozy up to and wanted and, and, and derive benefit from influencing, then it would probably be, there'd be a lot less poor behavior, let's say, in that industry there, and it would get less of a bad rap. And you know, people would probably look upon it very differently. They'd probably look upon it the way I look upon what you do. Like I see this, you know, individual who's, you know, humble, who's willing to do the hard work, who believes in, in the work they're doing, who wants to create a, you know, a healthy life for themselves and their family, who wants to be stewards of their environment. Like there's nothing wrong with that narrative as far as I'm concerned, but it gets, it gets polluted by the broader overstructure of where that industry sits. Yeah. And I mean, the problem too is just that there's so much conflicting, you know, media disinformation or just lack of awareness in people. Like, you know, my biggest pitch on energy is like, yeah, I come from the oil and gas industry. So obviously I'm probably a little bit biased towards it, you know, but at the same time, I I'm pro all forms of energy. Like energy brings human flourishing. Like mm -hmm. at the end of the day, that's what it does. But we all have to recognize the entire supply chain of you know what it takes to make that unit volume of energy you know how was it ori originally created 
how is it shipped to the masses? How is it sustained? And then at the end of the day, how is it reclaimed? Um, because there's a full life cycle of, of energy. So whether it's you know, solar and you're mining off the start and you're using coal power plants and then you're shipping it somewhere and then you've got a life cycle of you know, 10 to 15 years and then you're sending it to a developing country to put it into a landfill when you're done with it because you know, places here in the United States or North America won't, won't take it. You know, those are the those are the conversations that need to be happening is that every form of energy has positives, every form of energy has negatives, and every form of energy has, you know, a fit for purpose application, depending on your location of where you're at. Mm -hmm. And that should be the conversation is what is the best form of energy for your particular particular application and location. And, you know, at the end of the day, if something isn't sustainable, and when I say actually, so if something isn't profitable, it's not sustainable. Right. And right, right now, you know, a lot of these forms of renewable energies are being put into areas that probably don't make them the most sense. They're being subsidized. So the, the economics work right now, but long-term they, they may not be profitable or reliable. And that to me is not sustainable, but the whole yeah. pitch on a lot of these green projects are that it's, you know, the word sustainable is thrown out all the time, but you know, if something isn't profitable at the end of the day, it's not sustainable. Yeah. Well, and that, that's exactly the point. You know, you say that should be part of the conversation, but I'd approach it a bit differently and say, you know, the, 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 the perversion that fiat creates in a market is that things should be determined by conversation. No, the market will determine what form of energy to use at, you know, at what level and at what price in what jurisdiction and what geographic area, all that kind of stuff. Like, it's not to be dictated, you know, by decree, i.e. Exactly. fiat, that like, oh, well, solar panels should go here and wind turbines should go here. It's like, no, all, all these complex inputs will, um, will emerge from that, the answer to the question that you're holding in your mind, right? Not yeah. your imposition of your ideology on it. And so, yeah, I mean, and I mean, we're just so far down the road where that is such a radical notion to people, right? It's like everything yeah. is needs to be discussed and decided and fit into a certain narrative that is highly rife with ideological assumptions and ideological, you know, objectives or imperatives. And I mean, sometimes I, I think it's like it's a wonder things work at all. But at the same time, it's like things kind of are starting to break at the seams because there's been so much imposition of ideology rather than human action elucidating what the solutions should be, you know, and this is obviously exactly. a huge part of the hope of, of Bitcoin is that we'll get back to a place where that is what determines the world we get. And I think we're all very excited for the amount of prosperity and the amount of peace and the amount of, uh, you know, creativity and, and abundance and innovation that will happen as a result of that being unleashed, because yeah. the more you impose ideology on people, the more you stifle that, that you know spirit of exploration and creativity and the more you insist upon conformity to certain ideologies you know hatched by certain people with the power to enforce them and that's a stifling of the human spirit there's no two ways about it you know so that's why it's interesting you know i explore a lot on the pod this this idea of how bitcoin is transforming people and and one of the elements i think it's almost uh, unavoidable is that we're going to see a a kind of a freeing of the human spirit once the all the different things that are being imposed on them you know socially and economically 
are, if not completely removed, you know, dramatically reduced so that there's more space for their own spirit, their own creativity, their own mind to, to determine who they should be and what they should pursue and what they want to build and contribute to the world. Yeah, I think, you know, it's really interesting. I think Bitcoin is potentially, you know, the greatest, you know, education tool for how energy works. Um, I think it's fair to say that there's probably nothing else in the world that over the last year or two years has taught people like entire supply chains of energy systems or made them want to understand how they work mm. because it's become such a massive, you know, pull to find where is there the most energy being wasted? Where is there stranded energy? And what does that even mean? Like, you know, the majority of people aren't aware that your electrical grid is creating more energy than is being pulled because you need to make sure that that energy is there for the people that require it and if demand goes up and so but that excess energy is just being wasted mm -hmm. and people but people you know the average person and it's not that people are stupid or don't get it it's just it's not something you think about in your day-to-day -day life and so you know people aren't aware that there's you know hydro dams that you know it's based on how much water they're backholding or putting through their system as to how much power is being created but that doesn't mean that's what's actually being utilized downstream of them or that you know, in oil and gas that there's, you know, thousands of idled wells that aren't producing right now that because they're not economic in, you know, the current situation where, you know, getting, they don't have access to a pipeline or the, you know, the cost to produce that well, um, everything that's involved in it or the liability on the well at the end of its life, it, it doesn't have an economic value in traditional oil and gas. But if you can bring the market to that wellhead and mine Bitcoin off of it, well, that changes things. And so, you know, I think that people just are starting to understand or realize, you know, energy systems a little bit more than they've used to. And I think that that's great that Bitcoin can help educate people because at the end of the day, energy is what brings human flourishing. Like I wholeheartedly believe that it brings prosperity and going down the path of trying to kill the most efficient or, you know, the most reliable energy sources is taking us a step back and putting more harm to people than good. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that as more people adopt and educate themselves about Bitcoin, I, I really think that uh, the energy system education probably comes along with that as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think it's also part of a broader attitude, especially amongst Bitcoiners where, you know, you, you, you want to check your assumptions. I mean, I think as cliche as it sounds like we are kind of all truth seekers. Right. And it's like, I don't want to just yeah. take for granted this system. That's so vital to my survival and everything. Like I, I would like to understand it. Now there's a million things you to understand in the world. So there's a certain degree of prioritization and things you got to focus on and things you, you maybe you can let other people focus on, but it definitely seems to be a trend where, you know, Bitcoiners want to make up their own minds about things. And if you're going to do that sincerely, you need to have the, the, the right information. You need to understand things as well as possible so that you can put it through your own filter and apply your own values and principles to it and come up with something that's, you know, that you believe in, right? That you think is, is yep. the right approach to have. And I'm wondering, man, like it sounds like in, in Wyoming, you're, you're probably uh, surrounded by a lot of people that share your perspective on, on this topic at least, but has, you know, going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and, and because a, a lot of, this is the real trick, right? Like if you, if you, if the assumption that like living in a fiat dominated culture has 
conjured up all these narratives that are untethered from reality, right? And as a result, you like most people are walking around with narratives and assumptions in their heads that are fairly divergent from the truth on the ground, right? The facts on the ground and, and, and truth generally, let's say. Uh, and that's why I think part of the reason why as, and again, I'll, I'll use Bitcoiners particularly, Bitcoiners start to learn about all these disparate things and then they end up having divergent narratives from you know, what most people hold. And obviously that's kind of the, the creates a tribal aspect between the two factions and, you know, how Bitcoiners might clash ideologically with, you know, the dominant social narrative or whatever it may be. Has that been, you know, at all um, intrusive or disruptive in your life as, or has your, has your perspective on these things changed in the last couple of years as a result of these pursuits? And, you know, has that influenced you in any sort of negative way? Um, I mean, I don't think so. Like, I think, and I just want to make sure I probably understand like what you're asking, I guess, the most on this in terms of like being in Wyoming, are people kind of like-minded or thinking the same or, or what are your, th yeah, I mean, that uh, fair point. Maybe that was a bit long-winded, but ju just to say that, you know, if, when you're seeking truth in a, in a society that is, yeah gone way away from truth you end up having kind of conflicting or confrontational perspectives to to people oh, yeah. and and bitcoin my impression is that being involved in bitcoin and learning about it and having that permeate other things definitely amplifies that dynamic and i'm just yeah. wondering you know if, if that's been the, the case for you so i think for myself personally um you know the last 18 or 20 months has been very interesting where you know all of my families in canada a large portion of my friends that I've grown up with or, you know, went to college with or anything are still in Canada. And, um, you know, there's, there's major difference in ideology as to who has whose best interest in mind. You know, does the government have your best interest in mind? Do the public health authorities have their best interest in mind? And, you know, what the average Canadian thinks versus what the average, you know, Wyomingite thinks. Mm. on those kinds of subjects or topics is, is, uh, you know, drastically different. Um, I would say that, you know, I've kind of mentioned earlier that I can be a, a challenging individual, especially if I'm talking to people about things I'm passionate about. Um, you know, ask any one of my friends or coworkers or anything like that is that, you know, I can get pretty fired up and I like to get my point across for sure. Um, probably, you know, a little more aggressively than, than sometimes I should, but um, yeah, I've, I've definitely faced challenges with that, you know, within my own family, even, or within friendships that, you know, there's a, you know, I look at people and say, I feel like you can't open your eyes on this. Like you need to look around and see what's going on. And, and so I think that there's been, you know, that, that sort of things for sure been a challenge, but, uh, and I think being around Bitcoiners, there's that inherent, I think the person that gets attracted to Bitcoin to start with, you know, has an inherent, you know, questioning, you yeah. know, sense within them. Um, you know, there's a, a longing for self-sovereignty and, you know, you know, liberty of, of everything that they have and lack of infringement and, you know, things like that. So I think that, you know, surrounding yourself with people that are like-minded Bitcoin wise, you, you are going to talk about a lot of the same things or have a lot of the same interests. Um, I think that, you know, definitely challenges for me and it's, it hasn't really been living in Wyoming is I think that 
everyone in Wyoming is a Bitcoiner without knowing they're a Bitcoiner. <laughs> um, these are the type of people that are going to be drawn to it. There's a lot of them just aren't aware of it yet. Right. Um, but yeah, so I'd say in my personal life, definitely that, um, you know, <clears throat> as I've went more down, deeper down the, the Bitcoin rabbit hole, deeper down what's been happening over the last 18 to 20 months with uh, a lot of the, you know, theatrical performance of COVID that uh, it's challenged relationships for sure with that I've got um, just because not everywhere, you know, especially, you know, Canadians don't, don't think necessarily the same way on average um, as probably, you know, people here in Wyoming or myself thinks about a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I share those sentiments. Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's tricky to navigate, right? Because you, you, you can be left with the feeling that, you're living in different worlds, right? Like in your mind, like you're, you're seeing the world completely differently. And yeah. the issue is like, well, how do you bridge that gap as best as possible? Now the, now the best possible option might just be not to try and just to let, let leave people alone, right? Let people that are, are seeing things so differently than yourself, just, you know, kind of politely let them go about their business and hope they respect you the same way and allow them to do that. But it's yeah. it's such a <clears throat> such a I guess it's such a weird time to be living in because the the views and perspectives can be so diametrically opposed and, and you know like one of them's more right than the other and we're probably going to find out but it's probably not going to be that pleasant you know the, the finding right. out process so yeah it's been tough I mean I've I've definitely been politely asked to quit sharing my opinions and thoughts really people that i'm close with you know yeah whether it's family or friends or just hey we're sick of hearing what you think about it like yeah we're fine with how things are going and and that's fine if people are okay with it but it, it's you know the, the challenging thing for me has been that you know it's hard when it's people that you love right yeah and that's that's the point i've tried to get across is like look we've been in wyoming our daughter she's one you know, over the last year, she gets to go out and live a normal life and strangers can hold her and she can interact and nothing's closed down and people congregate and get together and, are, are, you know, it's, it's not even a topic of conversation. And then, you know, we look north, a nine hour drive and we've got family who, you know, can't hang out with each other over Christmas legally. Like there's only your household can be within your house over Christmas and there's, you know, you know, grow up playing hockey in Canada outdoors and the police are shutting down outdoor hockey games. And there's, you know, just things like that where, you know, it wasn't until July where Alberta officially opened up and they're already brought back restrictions again. And, you know, the overwhelming majority of people are, are double vaccinated. And so you just, it's very tough when I look at, you know, I just say like life doesn't have to be that way or you don't have to, you know, life can go on if you just choose to let it go on. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's frustrating me to see, I think what's, what, uh, you know, is happening up there and, and to a lot of people to, you know, and it may be true is they just go, look, it's not that big of a deal. Like if we can't get together with a hundred people, it doesn't bother us or, or whatever. And then you go, okay, I, I understand that. But the fact that that rules there to begin with, you know what I mean? Right. And, and I think that's just the difference between, some people's personalities and i think you know the average canadian has a has an inherent trust within the the government that the government has their you know best uh you know what's what's best for them in mind 
Whereas, yeah. you know, I think a place like Wyoming or, you know, I think the United States definitely doesn't share that, uh, that same inherent trust. I mean, that's, that's the, the basis of the philosophy that the United States was built upon, right? Was mm-hmm. to, to not have that inherent trust and to, to rebel or to question or to do what's best for yourself kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, unfortunately, Canada is one of those countries that's like the most fiat-pilled of, of any developed nation around the world today, you know, just kind of yeah. ho- hopelessly, uh, yeah, hopelessly believes in, in the authority of the government and, you know, kind of turn to it for everything. And, you know, the thing is, is you're saying about those people like, you know, who say it's not a big deal, whatever, whatever. It's like, yeah, sure. You, I get it. That's your, that's totally your preference. The, the problem is, is that in a free society, you're more than able to have that opinion and act accordingly, as am I. In the society that you are now nonchalantly accepting and even in some cases vocally advocating for, sure, you get to live out what you, your perspective that you just articulated, but I can't for mine. So right. the, in the former, we both get to do what we think is best. In the latter, only you do. Do you yeah. not and see the danger of that? Exactly. And, and you know, to Burton's credit, they say, look, None of this would be in place if it wasn't for the fact that our, our hospitals are being overrun right now. And, you know, and that's, that's what a lot of the argument is. But then I say, hey, look, you're 20 months into this pandemic. And in a population of 4.3 million people, you have 200 people around, you know, 200, 250 people, whatever the number is in ICU and you're maxed out. And you're, you're now having to put restrictions in place because that's all you can know. handle. And it's, you just go, look, that's a failure of your government. Like, totally. If if it's, it's a failure of much sorry yeah. go ahead. No, i was just gonna say like if you have that many people and and that's all you can handle and you're this far into a you know the pandemic like that's i don't know there's really not much more to say on that yeah and and, and that's the thing right you're not allowed to say anything more on that like let, yeah. let let's be real right if in a, in a self-regulating free market system if demand goes up that means there's more opportunity and supply will come up to meet it, right? It's funny how in no point throughout this whole, you know, ordeal, as you say, you know, to use the hospital bed example, it's like, well, if you're saying that there's way more demand, then how come the supply hasn't come online? And the answer is, well, because that's not how governments operate. You know, they operate on spreadsheets and data and slow moving and the incentives are all fucked up. So like, you know, if this if this was a deregulated free market, then yeah, you you know that that capacity would have come online because there's a benefit to bringing it online, yeah. you know. But no, at no point does that even enter the conversation. And and I mean that it, it's just so dangerous, you know. It, it that's my issue. It's like I don't give a fuck what anybody does. You do do it do what you think is best, and I'll do what I think is best. And I'm happy to let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. But when we get into a point where the imposition of what people think is best is being, you know, forcefully imposed on people. And in such a short period of time, you know, the history does not, um, you know, study of history would, would show that that's probably a very dangerous situation to be in. And that's, that's my concern is that like, you know, the kind of the mass hysteria or the mass narrow mindedness or the mass uh, emotional form of decision making rather than rational is like well then all bets are off right and anything can really happen you know just whatever narrative takes hold is is what plays and if you don't have those those 
foundational principles, as you said earlier, where the United States was one of the countries that really kind of nailed it on, on those foundational principles. Other countries have some, but if you just do away with them entirely in favor of an emotional response to a, a situation, then you're, you're, you're kind of done for, like things can go off the rails really fast. And I think, you know, that's what a lot of Bitcoiners are concerned about and why, you know, talking to someone who's living in, living in Wyoming is probably of interest because it's like, well, that's, that's, that's a big consideration these days. It's like, where can you go to insulate yourself from the dangers of that sort of decision-making uh, dominating most of the world? Yeah. And like, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm a doomsday prepper or anything either. It's just, but it is at the same time, you know, you want to live in a place where, you know, you're infringed upon the least. And I think yeah. that at the end of the day, that's, that's the best that you can really strive for, you know, it's to hope for, but yeah, like I think you hit the hit the nail on the head too when you talk about like the, you know the market should dictate it. It's like look what we're seeing with oil and gas right now. You know there was a lack of investment in oil and gas. Less wells were being drilled when prices dropped due to the demand being down during COVID, and now everybody's getting hurt on the other end of it because oil oil prices are going up, natural gas prices are going up. You know oil and gas companies can't drill fast enough right now to to meet the demand for people it's same with you know bitcoin is that you know people are chasing flared gas or stranded gas on bitcoin mining or the cheapest sources of energy because that's where it makes the most sense right like that's where you should be focusing your attention because at the end of the day you need to be profitable and sustainable and same with what you see like let's take alberta for example is that you know if hospitalizations are up and you can't handle it what's the plan in place to fix that other than just purely locking down because you know that's just a reaction lock down harder <laughs> It'll yeah, work like it, you know at the end of the day that's just a reaction you know you need to have a plan in place that actually mitigates it and it's like well look you know how many people were out of work over the last two years that were receiving government money to you know basically do nothing like mm -hmm. is there not like a an ability to have put some kind of a government program that's like a 12 or 16 week training program to say hey your whole focus in this 12 to 16 weeks is to only treat a COVID patient. Mm -hmm. And we're going to pay for your schooling to do that. And we're going to get you trained up to work in an ICU or to, you know, not necessarily, I'm not trying to degrade nurses or doctors or their abilities sure, or sure, anything, sure. but you know, you can learn a lot in a short amount of time on any subject. And the fact that people were just, you know, basically paid to sit at home when we could have put programs in place that they could have been adding value to society as well. Yeah. And so I think that's just the difference in it. Well, this is where people get to thinking that there's ulterior motivations at play, right? Because it's, it's almost like it's too ignorant. It's too stupid that things have been allowed to happen the, the way they've happened. Like, and, and I actually kind of, I mean, I, I can see both and I kind of oscillate back and forth between the two. Like I fully appreciate how stupid people can be, especially when they're acting on mass, right? And they're they're not being critical and they're just their emotions are being taken away through different narratives. Like people can act really, really stupidly. And that's that's probably what's going on. But still it it, it still staggers. It, it, you know, it still challenges even that in me when I see just as you just said, like there's there are so many better ways to handle this beyond taking everyone's freedoms away, locking everyone down and you know, printing a kajillion dollars, right? Like they're yeah. Any, any sensible person could have come up with a better response, which, you know, which leads to thinking like, well, are there ulterior motives? We'll probably never know, right? But- uh, Yeah, and you like to give, you know, people credit and say, you know, 
it's easy to look out, you know, from a 30,000 foot view and say, you should do something differently. But at the same time, I think just the lack of, um, you know, discussion that happens publicly about what options are available, you know, mm-hmm. like, I think, you know, at least from my perspective anyways, is that, you know, my career has been built on risk mitigation in oil and gas operations. You know, all I've done my whole career is try to think of what can go wrong and then have a solution in place in case that that happens. And it's infinite. The number of things that can go wrong when you drill or complete an oil and gas well, it's just, there's so much. And so when you see it, it seems like that people aren't taking those kind of things into place and that there's just one answer and that's it. But there's not like a healthy debate or discussion on like all of the potential options. Because as soon as you bring up something that doesn't fit the current way that you're doing it, you know, you're chastised or you're ridiculed or, you know, you're a crazy conspiracy theorist or, you know, there's just, you know, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it just seems like there's not a, there's not a healthy debate on, um, there should be no topic that's off limits to talk about a better way to do things. And it should be completely public and out there of these things happening. Yeah. Because isn't it a i may be butchering this quote but i thought it was and i don't know who it's by but it, like someone d- defining evil via the deliberate <laughs> removal of nuance you know and, and so in, in that way like imposing a narrow point of view is like almost you know kind of part of the definition of evil right it's like you're yeah. just saying no i'm assuming perfect knowledge and i'm assuming the right to impose that perfect knowledge on everyone Right, which yeah. is, is completely insane, as you're just saying. I mean, any logical person would, I think, would agree with what you just said. It's like, look, we live in a dynamic world. Lots of different potential outcomes are possible. What are the probabilities of the different potential outcomes? What are our capabilities? How much should we even be involved in imposing them versus allowing emergent order to, to occur? You know, and obviously, it's not a perfect answer, right? Because when you're dealing with, in particular, engineering-related uh, things, like, you impose your order on the system and that's how you get the benefit, right? But so you you have to find that balance and depending on which system you're operating within, but yeah, it's just, we live in a crazy world. We live in a clown world, you know, as the memes so often these days, uh, you know, point to, it's just every, every day it's like an endless stream, but I'm, you know, thank God for Bitcoin. Basically I'm, I'm extremely grateful that Bitcoin is happening and it's such a, a lever for for change and for transformation on the individual level and for sovereignty on the individual level and it's it's imposing a free market effectively on the world and it's still early days and it hasn't had a chance to you know permeate all different markets of the world yet but like what it's doing for money what you guys are doing with energy i mean this is the start of it saying no, if the money is free then the markets upon which the money is built will also be free and there's nothing you can do about it and yeah. a lot of people don't like that because you know, there's a lot of control freaks out there and there's a lot of egotistical behavior behind that. But I think a lot of people that share an attitude like you and I, where we say like, you know, do what, do your best, try to seek truth and allow emergent order to reveal itself as a result of the work that you do and the value, the values that you have and the value you're trying to put out into the world. And so, you know, yeah, there's a lot of I good mean, stuff I've... happening too amongst the clown world. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, Bitcoin, in my opinion, brings like ESG is like the, 
you know, one of the biggest things in all the investment community, no matter what industry you're in, right? Like ESG, 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 the E definitely comes to the forefront of most people's discussions when they talk ESG. And I hope that the environmental side of it doesn't just completely take over. But, you know, a lot of topics and discussions are framed to be, how can you argue this thing? This is good. And so if you question something, you're questioning you want to do good for the environment. You want to do good for your social communities. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, how can you question that? Because at the end of the day, it's all good things, but um, you're not, I really, obviously. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so in my opinion, though, I, I don't think that there is a better story for, you know, what brings the most net benefit to society in almost any conversation than Bitcoin. I mean, it can help on so many levels, like where we're, we're not wasting energy. We're taking energy that otherwise would have been wasted. You can build out your grid system to be more reliable when you use baseload to take, you know, or whatever your baseload is and create excess, you Bitcoin mine off of that. And then you take the, the S factor, the, yeah, sorry, the S factor on the social side of things. And you look like, look what it's doing in, in El Salvador right now. Like, it's amazing. There's more people in the first month of Bitcoin being recognized as legal tender using a Bitcoin wallet than there are people that have a bank account. Bank account. Like yeah. that's absolutely amazing. <laughs> and uh, you know the amount of money that people are saving by you know with remittance and things like that going to these countries. Like I have a hard time understanding how any politician right now that truly cares about their constituents or their people on any side, left, right, center, whatever, if they understand Bitcoin, how you can actually like make a case against it. Well, you can, and that, that's the big exactly. if though. It's, it's only ignorance. So yeah. that's the- But if. it's growing as more and more people are becoming educated. You know, I think that uh, there's a lot of people doing a great job of trying to educate people on, on the actual utility of Bitcoin, as opposed to just people thinking like, oh, this thing you buy and then it goes up and you make money. Like mm -hmm. as more and more people educate society as a whole on, you know, how does Bitcoin help the environment? And how does Bitcoin help people? And you start, how does Bitcoin help the monetary, you know, policy and, you know, things like that is that as more and more people actually become educated on it, like there's just no way to stop it. It's just, you can't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the incumbents will, will sure try, right? Because it is the death blow to the existing right. you know, system and how the existing system operates. And anyone who benefits from the, the current operation, be they in media, government, or wherever, uh, they're the ones that have been, and I'm, I presume will continue to be uh, pumping out these alternative narratives to, to muddy the water at least for so that people exactly. don't understand fully what Bitcoin is. But again, I mean, what, what's so, what's so beautiful and, and invokes like, a, a, you know, spiritual or religious aspect to all this is like when you have a truth that can't be stopped, I mean, you, you you're going to win. It's, 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 yeah. it's almost inevitable. Right. And, there's not that many truths that can't be stopped in the world, which again is why like, you know, the religious stuff gets invoked. And I think that that's a very interesting uh, thing to explore, which I like to explore, but um, yeah, I mean, there's this inevitability about it and that, you know, that's a bit dangerous. You want to be careful how much you, you uh, lean into that because 
nothing is truly inevitable, let's say, right? Like an asteroid could wipe out Earth tomorrow. But yeah. as far as things go, it seems highly probable that, that this is going to continue asserting itself on the world. And so I think, you know, the task of people that believe that it's a force for good is just to lean into it and amplify it as much as possible. Use it for, as a force for good in your own individual life, right? And use it as a force for good, uh, you know, on the broader world. And the, yeah. the beautiful thing is, is that engaging with it for the, the, the former objective produces the latter. And yeah. I, I think that's how, how things are best organized. Yeah, I agree. And then, you know, all the positives that it, that it brings, you know, you're starting to just see, you know, more and more institutions or companies realizing it too. And like we said, the oil and gas industry is definitely starting to understand the implications of it. Like at the end of the day, for anyone in oil and gas to get into Bitcoin, reason for them to do it or or they're not going to do it but as they're they're starting to understand okay yes i can make some money off of it but now also what typically hampers oil and gas companies from from doing anything it's that if it goes against an esg story that their investors want them to tell you know they can't do it but uh i think that as the education gets out there you get more and more of these industries that go oh, no we can tell a positive story on why we're using bitcoin and I think right. that's when you're really going to start seeing some of this mass adoption. Totally. And, and I agree with that wholeheartedly, but also like there's no better motive for action than the incentives forcing your hand, right? Like you, yeah. you, you can say like, yeah, sure. Our, our investors don't want us to do X. It's like, all right, well, our competitors 10 X their, their, the capital on their balance sheet this year. So it's do or die, you know, and, and those are part of the incentives of Bitcoin, which is, what makes it so uh, ultimately you can't ignore it, right? And which gives it that sense of ine inevitability. Um, yeah. Do you get the sense that things are like, um, is there a tipping point happening in oil and gas yet? Or is it still too early to say that that's how people are looking at it? I think so. Um, you've got a lot of companies right now that are using, you know, smaller Bitcoin mining systems on, on wells that are truly stranded or flared. Um, you know, I think I brought up some points as to how the scalability of that can be very challenging. Um, scalability or just, uh, you know, staying online 100% of the time or even 90% of the time or, you know, operational logistical challenges of having to move to the next place and the next place. And, you know, that's why having them containerized and having the ability to move things is, you know, is great. But at the same time, that also still cuts into your, your operating expenses. But um I think that there's a lot of companies that do realize that, hey, if we, we have some stranded assets or, you know, some wells that we can't get to the market, this is a solution. I think almost all of them recognize that now. Um, really? But like I said, th those wells are getting harder to come by or those applications are getting harder to come by as today's ESG environment and lack of investment into the space makes those opportunities harder to come by because the majority of wells that are being drilled are going to get put to sales already. Um, what I think you are starting to realize is that companies are looking at this as going, you know, some of the biggest companies and Bitcoin mining companies in the world have 30, 50, 100, 200 megawatts in operation, which is, you know, massive scale Bitcoin mine. But you look at the power that's being utilized and the oil and gas industry deals with this type of volume of potential power all day long mm -hmm. and is actually quite insignificant to their overall production. 
And so I think, and then you see what the, the balance sheet is of some of these public mining companies and what their market cap is and what the you know, value of these um, Bitcoin mines are. And you start having companies going, well, we don't need to build something anywhere close to being that big, but if we can dedicate some fraction of a percent of our gas stream and build something 10% of the size of that, or you know, 5% of the size of that, and we can add that kind of value to our organization, you know, why would we not be doing that? Mm-hmm. And so I think you are starting to have some companies um, come to those realizations. We're working with a few right now that, you know, we can't mention who they are, but they're, they're big names. And when some of these companies pull the trigger on some of these projects or, or start to announce what they're doing, you know, they have the ability to be competitive with, you know, almost any Bitcoin mining company out there based on the resources and the assets that they sit on. It doesn't have to be stranded or flared only. It can be a combination of everything. And so I think that uh, that's the part that most companies haven't come to the realization of is like, what is like the massive value potential of what they're sitting on? Um, but that, that's definitely rounding the corner in my opinion. Yeah. Um, last one for you, man. The Where do you see this going in the next five to 10? Like Bitcoin mining, and the oil and gas industry specifically. I mean, you kind of just touched on it there, but where do you see this playing out? Or how do you see this playing out? So um, I wanna clarify when I've talked about, you know, logistical potential or issues on flare gas Bitcoin mining is that that's not me saying that it's not possible. I think I've also spoken to how it greatly helped our company, you know, in keeping our oil production online. And so there's, there's an absolute immense application for that. It's just gonna take the people that are really good at doing it and understanding the operational issues or logistical issues that come with it to make sure that they have their business model correct to take advantage of it. Um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of shut-in, idled, orphaned wells out there as well um, that are both an environmental and a, uh, a capital liability to a lot of these states. I think that there's some potential for that. It's gonna be a small percentage, but there is some p- potential for that. I really do think the biggest thing that you're going to see is that there's a lot of oil companies that are large landowners. Um, They own mineral interests in the well royalties. Um, They have substations, big power grids already built within their positions to handle some of the power intensive projects on the oil and gas side that we already have. And they're going to start recognizing that like a very small portion of our, of our total production can actually turn out to be a very large Bitcoin mine and be competitive globally on the actual market. Like we can compete against some of the the biggest guys out there if we develop some of this. But I mean, obviously it's very capital intensive, but the energy does sit there. And if you own that whole supply chain and you're cutting out the middleman and it's, you know, we own the minerals, we own the wells, we own the land, we own all of that. And the overwhelming majority of our product gets sold traditionally on the market that our operating expenses that we you know, have on the Bitcoin mine can be paid for and we can hold Bitcoin, um, you know, and you build it to with that kind of a purpose in mind that your business, you, you know, you look at it like from an asymmetrical risk standpoint, if your business can be self-sustaining without Bitcoin, but then you add Bitcoin mining to it, it's, you know, you can almost become unstoppable in that mindset. Yeah. And so I think that that's going to be the next step in the next five years. You're going to see some very large oil companies, midstream groups that recognize that like Bitcoin shouldn't be our business model. 
it shouldn't be what we rely on, but it can be in an addition to what we already do, which is profitable and needed in society. I think that you're going to see these guys absolutely blowing up and becoming extremely competitive in the Bitcoin mining space. That's so interesting. And so and you, J energy, you know, that's what, that's what we're trying to do and facilitate is, yeah. is uh, on that kind of a scale. You know, it just occurs to me when you were saying that, that, you know, I mentioned earlier that Bitcoin will bring free markets to, well, to money. And as a result of that, to all industries ultimately, but it's, it's, it's interesting to, to kind of note that like, okay, well, Bitcoin incentivizes finding like the cheapest energy or incentivizes, you know, energy production to go into it. And you have to, because it's such a competitive market, you have to be very discerning. So basically the, 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 the market, Bitcoin competes on a free market for energy, maybe more so than anything else for a variety of reasons. And the, the result of that will be those uh, companies and those producers, as you said, holding Bitcoin on their balance sheet, right? They're able to not, they don't have not forced into selling their Bitcoin. And what that ultimately does is five, 10 years down the road, that's going to mean that they are way, you know, again, my assumption is that Bitcoin continues to do what it's going, what it's going to do and ultimately becomes, you know, global based money. They're going to be in such a stronger position than all of their competitors who did not do that. And it's kind of like revenge of the energy free markets, right? It's like that not only will Bitcoin change the dynamics of the market itself, but the incredible boon to the people that first approached it in that way and first availed of that and first engaged in that free market will be orders of magnitude, you know, higher benefit than those that didn't. And as a result of that, they'll be able to ostensibly, you know, uh, preserve the free market in the industry that they're in. Yeah, exactly. And so like, you know, as difficulty increases and margins get smaller, you know, if, if, when that comes, it's going to be, you know, obviously, you know, the cheapest cost producers when I'm talking, you know, mining Bitcoin are going to be the winners. And that's how the oil and gas space works too. When times get tough in the oil and gas environment, it's the cheapest cost producers, you know, the ones that spend the less dollar per barrel that, uh, that survive and stay online. And so, yeah, I wholeheartedly believe that, um, the oil and gas industry will start looking at this as like, you know, we can substitute, you know, some portion of our revenue stream for Bitcoin mining. And if Bitcoin mining works or doesn't work, hopefully we can reach a payout on our investment first before that happens. But all of our operating expenses and everything, our business model works whether or not Bitcoin mining works. And so you only have upside value on Bitcoin mining, if you add it into your portfolio and you don't make it an overwhelming portion of your portfolio, you, you know, you, you've got gas production, you've got oil production, you know, you just utilize a small percentage of that. And like I said, the, the power that can be generated off of a, you know, a unit volume of gas is significant. And that in these full field gathering systems and in these gas plants and midstream lines, there's so much natural gas being moved that such a small percentage of that gas devoted to Bitcoin mining makes you a major player. Right. If you know, so it's just, I look at that as just being, just have an asymmetrical risk portfolio where you, you basically have eliminated all downside to Bitcoin mining because you have a business model that will work. And if your Bitcoin mine doesn't work, you, you will still eventually make your returns on that and it won't sink your company. And you, you still make oil production. You still have gas going down the line, but now you've just substituted 
Bitcoin to act as like a natural hedge against your other production or like a you know to potential to capture an arbitrage value. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's what you're going to see is that uh, you're going to see some massive oil and gas companies and midstream groups that become major players in the space and yeah. they have almost no downside risk. Man, that's exciting. I can't wait to see how this stuff plays out. And I'm sure, you know, you're, you're, you feel the same way, given that you're so involved in the industry. Um, dude, I really appreciate the time. Was there anything else, uh, you know, you want to cover or anything related to uh, Jay or if, you know, people wanting to learn more that you want to share? Yeah, yeah no, I, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, I appreciate you having us on here. Uh, we like to, to be able to tell our story. And, you know, the big thing for us is just kind of talk about how we're, you know, we've got a little bit different mindset or, or mentality or, you know, a little bit different business model than, than most people out there. And it's not that one business model is right or wrong at all. It's just that, you know, we chose to go a different path on this. And, you know, that's, that's really all we're trying to do is we're on a mission to, you know, one, build our own mining site. Um, you know, we're one of the largest Bitcoin mining companies in Wyoming right now. Um, we're continuously putting, you know, more containers that we're building out on our site. We've got two more to fire up this week. But uh, um, really, we're, we're just on a mission to, to educate and advocate for Bitcoin mining within the oil and gas space, within our own connections, and trying to make people aware of what the, the, the plentiful resource that they sit on and how little of a risk Bitcoin mining can actually be within their own portfolio, but how much uh, potential upside it has. And so yeah. that's really the, the mission that we're on. Well, man, I love it. And uh, we'll have to get together in another six to 12 to talk about, you know, everything that's happened in the interim, because I'm sure it's going to be a very, you know, things progress the way many of us think they're going to over the next 12 to 18 months. I'm, I'm sure it's not going to be boring. So you'll yeah, probably absolutely. have lots of more stories to tell in, in that period of time. Yeah, let's stay in touch for sure. I appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. Take care, brother. All right. Thanks, man. Cheers. Cheers.